Take your hymn books, your Bibles, I should say, and turn to Daniel chapter 1, the book of Daniel chapter 1. We'll begin reading in Daniel 1, from the very first verse. Daniel 1, verse 1, let's hear the Lord's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. We'll end our reading in verse 8. Asking God to add his blessing to it for his name's sake. Now, would you bow your head with me for a moment, please? Let's all seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we've come now to the time of the preaching of the word of the Lord. How we need the Holy Ghost. Our minds, Lord, can easily be distracted. We can allow the thoughts to creep in and be the reason for missing the very truth that could be life-transforming. So we pray, Lord, that Thou wilt guard our thoughts and Thou wilt prepare the hearts to receive the Word of God and Thou wilt take Thy servant up once again Bless, bless his soul, bless his mind, bless his tongue. May he be tonight one who utters the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit. Grant that, Lord, and all is well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I want to speak this evening for a little while about living for God from the life of this young man, Daniel. And to introduce him, 
Here in chapter 1, I really want to use the situation of another young believer who lived hundreds of years after Daniel had gone home to his reward. That young man's name was Timothy. Life is about to change for Timothy, just as life has suddenly changed for young Daniel. Timothy's situation is this. His spiritual father and mentor, the Apostle Paul, will soon be put to death for the gospel. No longer will he be there to exhort him, to encourage him when he was discouraged, to instruct Timothy where he needed instructing, the one he called his son in the faith. Paul has also made it clear that the passing of time will bring, as it always does, a great change in the church. Paul tells Timothy that the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. The word sound means health-giving doctrine, teaching that actually promotes spiritual health. The time will come, he tells his son of the faith, when men will not want to hear sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They will want their carnal lusts scratched, so to speak, by these teachers. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. They will have heard the truth, but they will turn their ears away from it and start listening to fables. He informs Timothy that evil seducers are going to wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it was going to be a time, therefore, not only with Paul's departure, but a time of great transition and change in the life of Timothy, a time when many will be duped by the devil. And that is why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned you just keep on, Timothy. No matter what happens, you continue in what you've learned and been assured of. Don't let anyone or any circumstance change you. It would be as Timothy continued in these same doctrines he got from Paul, who got them from the Holy Spirit, the same example of life set for him by Paul, that Timothy would be able, in spite of all the changes he was going to face, to remain true and faithful to Jesus Christ, the one and the only one who never changes. The same yesterday, today, and forever. One thing is certain in life. 
the devil exerts a constant pressure upon the people of God to change, not into the image of Jesus Christ, but to fashion themselves after the image, after the fashion of this world. That's what he's always after. He pushes continually for a change for evil. He wants the gospel preacher to change his doctrine to amend it so that it's more palatable to people who would be offended by it. No, you must water down. You must change. So you don't want to drive people away, do you? So you need to change your doctrine. Don't make it so offensive. He wants the preacher to change his stand, his convictions. He wants the people of God to change and in that change to give more room to the world in their home, in their thinking, ultimately in their hearts. More room for the world. Of course, he knows that when you have more room for the world in your heart and in your thinking, you have less room for Christ in your heart and in your thinking. How the devil loves that kind of change. And he skillfully uses the changes of life to bring about a backward change in the life of the church. Therefore, there is this constant need to continue in the doctrine and duties and devotion to Christ. Daniel was another believer who had to deal with change like nobody's business. As a young man, somewhere in his late teens, it's figured out. Daniel was uprooted from his homeland when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. It was a time of tremendous upheaval and change. He was living in a completely new country with completely new surroundings. And he was surrounded by a people who were, for the most part, complete strangers to him. Yes, for this young man, it was a time of tremendous transition. Unbelievable change. But through it all, Daniel continued, he continued in the things he had learned and had been assured of. Here was a young believer transported against his will into a whole new world, a world that was permeated with corruption and immorality, which always goes along with pagan religion. He was surrounded by it. It pressed upon him. Even his name was changed to reflect a Babylonian god. Furthermore, he was exalted to a place of tremendous power. Power, power can be like a drug. You become drunk with it, and it can change you. Nearly all his life... He was in the public eye. Everything in his, in his experience and circumstances were geared to spoil him and to lead him away from the Lord. But for 70 years, mark it for 70 years, Daniel maintained a godly life and triumphed victoriously over it all. He didn't change. He didn't change his doctrine. 
He didn't change his stand. How did he do it? How did Daniel, he's a, a teenager. How did Daniel, in the face of such changes, such temptations, such allurements and outlandish immorality, how did he continue in the things he had learned? For a few moments, I want to give you a few highlights from Daniel's life that show us so clearly how I went on with God. The message is entitled simply, Staying True to Your Convictions No Matter What. Staying true to your convictions no matter what. Notice in the first place that Daniel was a man, a young man even, with a great purpose. A teen, but he had a great purpose as a teenager. Verse 8, it's the first glimpse we've given, we're given into the soul of Daniel. It's true, we read in verse 4, that he was one of those who had no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. He was remarkable in that realm. Good-looking, smart, Sharp. That's a picture of Daniel in his natural God-given abilities. But in verse 8, we get a glimpse of what made Daniel, Daniel who he was and what was the key ingredient of his spiritual steadfastness in the midst of all the change and all the corruption that surrounded him. And he says... Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. He had a purpose. He was a young man with a purpose. The Hebrew word means to fix or to establish something. Daniel was a teenager who had a fixed and settled uh, heart about something in life. In other words, his mind was made up. It was a conviction with him. It wasn't a preference. Well, depending on the circumstances, I can change this. No, it wasn't a preference with him. All that temptation definitely would have been there because all the other Jews are doing it. But I'm not going to. His heart was fixed. There was a conviction. He was not going to compromise his own convictions concerning what? Concerning the law of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar wanted, of course, to fatten up these Hebrew children so they could serve in his royal court. Remember that back in Jerusalem, they had been besieged by Babylon. They let no one go out or no one come in to Jerusalem. And so this Babylonian king was looking at people who were severely malnourished because of the lack of food. They were skin and bones. 
So he tells his servants to give them food from the king's table for three years. But Daniel, along with his three friends, refused to do so. Would that be tempting? You haven't had a good meal for months on end. And now you're offered from the king's table the best of the best. Regular meals for three years. No. Why? Because one of the ways that God set a mark of distinction upon his people, the Jews, from other nations was their diet. In the verse 11, God told Israel that they will be holy because he was holy. And he spends an entire chapter telling them what they can and can't eat in their diet. This is fine. This is forbidden. For the people of God in Daniel's day, the law of the Lord was very clear that they were certain foods that were off limits. Perhaps it was meat that had been offered to an idol, or perhaps there was food there that fell into the category of unclean, forbidden by the Lord. But though everyone around him in the king's court was eating all kinds of, of unclean meat, including, it appears, many of the Jews, Daniel was purposed that he was not going to transgress the law of God. I'm not doing it. This was not going to be a case of him of situation ethics. I'm not doing it. He's a teenager. I'm not doing it. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, orders it. I'm not doing it. That's conviction. He was going to continue to obey the word of God no matter what. No matter what anyone else did, no matter what it cost, I'm going to follow the Lord's word. You see it again when the king was tricked into issuing a decree that all were to pray to him. That's in Daniel 6. All were to pray to him. And if you don't, you're cast into the den of lions. How did Daniel respond? Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, the decree went out from the king, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. I am not changing. It doesn't matter what decree has been issued by the king. It's a conviction that I have. I will call upon God three times a day. When Belshazzar, many years later, saw the handwriting on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, none of his wise men could interpret it. Well, there's one, there's a Daniel here. He, he's able to read these things, and they bring Daniel in, and, you know, the message wasn't good. 
But Daniel did not hesitate to tell the king what it meant. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Whether it was Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, whether it was Jeremiah before King Zedekiah, Paul before King Agrippa, the people of God who have been used the most by the Lord are those who have remained true to their convictions, to the things that they have learned about God, and no matter what. They're the ones that have been used the most. They don't vacillate. It doesn't matter if people understand or agree with them. They've gotten their convictions from the Word of God. I know that the closer we get to the return of Christ, the church is going to see more and more of God's people, as Christ himself said in Matthew 24, a love that grows cold, that waxes cold. The love of them, that's literally the love of the many, shall wax cold. Not only in the world, but in the church, things are going to wax worse and worse. I don't mean to sound like I'm a pessimist, but I'm just giving you my take upon what the Scriptures teach about the end times. Even many of God's people, from what we saw a few moments ago, will lose their appetite for sound doctrine. They would rather be told funny stories, made to laugh, make sure it's short and sweet so I can get home to do the things that I want to do and not be bored by a long sermon. They would rather have that instead of being brought face to face with the solemnity of the worship of God. And that's where we are. And in such a state as this, there are those in the church who would wittingly or unwittingly lead you away from what you have, been lear- have learned from the Lord and learned from His Word and been assured of. That is why we must make Daniel's purpose our great purpose. We must, in the midst of this, this Babylon that surrounds us, we're living in a modern-day Babylon. Paganism, it's immorality, it's abounding. Everything is changing. It's not like it used to be. We must make up our minds that whatever anyone else says or does, we are like Caleb and Joshua many years earlier. We're going to follow the Lord fully. Stand by the conviction, no matter what. I should point out that Daniel, it says, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That Hebrew word, um, it, it covers not just the 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 mind, it does that, the understanding and it covers the will, the desires of the soul, but it also deals with the affections. This was in his heart. It wasn't just in his head. You know, c- convictions that are just in your head don't last. 
if they're just intellectual, then they're easily cast aside because anyone can come along and change your thinking about something. Give you a different set of data. Oh, I'll throw that one out. But when something is a conviction, it's purposed in your heart. It is something that you love. In other words, this, this purpose in Daniel was grounded in his love to the Lord, his love to his word. That's why he was so loyal to it. Is it it not absolutely astounding that Daniel, with his life on the line, would not hesitate to open his windows, like he's always done, and pray to his father three times. And there are Christians who will kind of stumble when it comes to saying grace in a public restaurant. What's it going to cost them? Their life? Why would they be embarrassed? What would they think of me? Where's the conviction in that? I ask. Heart love for Christ is the great stabilizing factor in any and every Christian's life. He loved the Lord. Daniel was not only a man with the great purpose, but he was a man with great prudence. I've already noted in verse 4 of chapter 1, he was skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge. He was a very, very intelligent young man. God had given Daniel a great mind. But you find that Daniel had another kind of wisdom that wasn't earthly. It was from above. I say that because in verse 17, in reference to Daniel and his three friends, that God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. You read in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream which none of his own wise men can interpret. But Daniel steps into the scene and he gives him the interpretation. And here's what he says in his prayer to God to thank him for giving him the interpretation. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom. And I tell you, the Lord must have given Daniel tremendous wisdom. I say that because of a little verse in Ezekiel 28. There Jehovah is condemning the king of Tyre for making himself to be God and taking credit for all that he had conquered. In verse 3 of that chapter, the Lord describes what this king thought of himself with these words. It's, 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 It's mockery. The Lord is mocking him. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. He didn't say wiser than Solomon. You think you're wiser than Daniel. Daniel was the one picked out. How Daniel, how wise he must have been for God to say that about him. Great prudence. When Christian young people have 
going off to college, there's always a danger of being swallowed up in a spirit that glories in scholarship, that aspires for more knowledge in order to be viewed by others as intelligent, intellectual, even philosophical. Yes, God gives to His church Christians with great intellects. Christians who can stand toe-to-toe with the intellectuals of this world. Christians who don't emanate a spirit that says spirituality and intelligence are enemies. Because they're not. But all the learning in the world, all the degrees, all of the intelligence, all of the doctrines that man has to offer are not going to keep the child of God constant with the Lord in the midst of all the corruption, in the midst of all the change. That will require wisdom from God. It was heavenly wisdom that enabled Daniel to see through all the emptiness of the allurements that were surrounding him. He was a teenager. You remember how that was? Some of you might have a more difficult time than others to remember that, but you know how it was when you were a teen. My, how things were so alluring. But God gave him wisdom to see through it all. It was this wisdom from above that equipped Daniel to deal with all the problems that he faced during those 70 years in Babylon. You and I are going to need this wisdom from the Lord to to stand on our convictions no matter what, no matter what the change, we're going to need wisdom from God to be able to do that. You will need to be able to discern the wisdom to discern the precious from the vile. Right from wrong. To be able to recognize that is sin or that really is an issue of indifference. It takes wisdom to do that. Because if you don't, you'll be calling something a matter of indifference when it's a matter of sin. Or you'll be calling something that's a sin a matter of indifference. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As long as you fear Him, you'll never need to be afraid of man. Or the pressures to change. You'll, you'll, you'll never need to be afraid of the intellectuals of this world. doesn't matter how high their IQ, how well they can argue. You've got wisdom from God. And everything is based upon the Word of God. Daniel was a man, thirdly, of great prayer. I pointed out that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't find a man to interpret his dreams. And so he makes that foolish decree 
that every wise man in Babylon is going to be slain if they can't come up with the interpretation. Kind of gives you an idea and a little insight into how petty he was. How immature he was. You're all going to die. You can't come up with an interpretation. You're dead. So foolish. But upon hearing this, Daniel goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and calls upon them to pray that God would give them mercy and enable them to interpret the dream because he's one of the wise men. They're, they're part of the wise men. They're going to be killed. This is Babylon after all. This king wasn't playing around. He's already in a difficult situation. Look at what course he takes. He takes the whole thing to the Lord in prayer. So, so characteristic of his life. We need to pray about this, man. We already saw how in chapter 6 he went to his windows three times a day and prayed. He didn't try to hide it. But all knew that Daniel was a man of prayer. That's the children's chorus, isn't it? Daniel was a man of prayer daily. He prayed three times, even when they had him cast in the den of lions. He didn't try to hide it. He was a man who prayed. The one area his enemies knew they could get on him had to do with his prayer life. We know this at least about Daniel. That man opened up his windows three times a day and prays to his God. That that could be said of you and me. If we're going to stand by our convictions no matter what, continuing the things we've learned, in spite of all the changes that, that providence, yeah, that providence will bring our way, providence brought this into Daniel's life. This wasn't happenstance. This is all part of God's plan. The Lord put Daniel where he was. He put him in that situation. If we're going to remain constant then we must, we, we must continue in prayer. We have no idea how much prayer actually strengthens our convictions. Just as little prayer weakens them. Going to church three times a week will not do. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to church three times a week. You should. One of my convictions. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor who has three services a week in his church. I did that long before I was a pastor. When the doors open, you're in the house of God. Boy, those convictions have changed, haven't they? Having family devotions will not do. Coming to the prayer meeting in the midweek and praying in the prayer meeting is not sufficient. 
You and I must continue on in personal prayer if we're going to continue unmoved in the face of change. Must. The lack of prayer will always lead to vacillation. Wavering back and forth. Do not make the mistake of so many in thinking that doing these things will suffice. Don't make the excuse that you just have too much to do, uh, too many things to tend to, too many errands to run, too tight a schedule, and therefore you can cut short your time of prayer. What Christ Jesus told Mary so long ago is still true. One thing is needful. Martha was cumbered with much serving, rushing about in the kitchen, trying to get the meal together. It had to be fed. Just don't have time. I've got to do this. Tell Mary to come and help me. I'm not telling her. She's staying where she is because there's one thing that's needful. It's not the kitchen. You know, it will be your life of prayer that will determine whether or not you'll be able to rejoice in the Lord when there's nothing to rejoice in in your circumstances. It's your communion with Christ that will give you that peace of mind that passes all understanding when there may not be any outward peace in your surroundings. It will be through prayer that your life will have a godly influence on your family or on law centers or on the people of God in the church. They're always the most effective, the praying people. It will be through prayer that you'll be enabled to remain constant when others are buckling under the pressure and giving way. And compromising. Mark it down. It's going to happen. It's unavoidable. To lose out with the Lord in prayer is to lose out altogether. Your business may prosper, you may be well liked by many. You may be active in all kinds of church activities, but it will all mean absolutely nothing if you allow your prayer life to lie dormant and cold. He was a man of great prayer. And I'm really not surprised that for 70 years he stood by his convictions no matter what. Finally, Daniel was a man, and this really to me is the heart of it all. He was a man who was greatly prized. Three times in Daniel 9, two times in Daniel 10, he's described in Scripture as a man greatly beloved. The marginal reading translated, a man of desires. 
That is that Daniel was a man for whom God had great longings, great desires. He was highly prized by God. He was greatly beloved. And at the end of the day, it is this fact that kept Daniel constant in the midst of all of the changes and the corruption of Babylon that he faced those 70 years. The Lord loves me. I'm a man greatly beloved. I've spoken of certain qualities of Daniel's life. His purpose, his prayer, all his principles. Why? Why was that so of him? Because he was greatly beloved of God. It was all because of grace. His mom and dad were no longer around. His siblings, if they were still alive, were no longer seen. As far as family was concerned, Daniel was alone. But for Daniel, there was this one foundational truth that kept him solid Steady, constant, through all the winds of change and the upheaval of four kingdoms. The Lord loves me. He has set his love on me. When you find yourself in the midst of change and upheaval, in the midst of Satan's temptations and attempts to destroy you, attempts to change you, Remember, the Lord loves me, and he's going to go on loving me all my life throughout all eternity. I am greatly beloved by God. I think that is one of the most difficult things that God's people ever learn to come to grips with and to believe with all their heart. You know, it's one thing to say it with your lips, but this conviction in your soul The Lord actually loves me, me. Nothing like that that makes you want to stand fast and not cave. One so highly loved. You see, we we struggle with what we know about ourselves. That last hymn we sang was so appropriate. We're so weak, we're so feeble, and we see ourselves. Haven't you ever said that to God in prayer? Lord, I am so unlovely and I am so unlovable. Have you not? Have you not felt that way? And we wonder, how, how could I be a man greatly beloved? I'll tell you how. It's through Jesus Christ. He loves you in Christ. Out of Christ there is no love. In Christ you're greatly beloved. You see, he's called his well-beloved son. And all in him are well-beloved.
His love for me isn't based upon my performance. His love for me is not even based on how well I do it standing by my convictions. His love for me is always grounded in his love for Christ. If you're one of his, that's your story. And that will be your history when it comes to the end of your life. He was a man greatly prized. And so he continued in the things that he had learned and was assured of. And that's all I want to say about living a godly life from the life of Daniel. God write that word on our souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all pray. Lord, we thank Thee for loving us in Christ. It is true, Lord. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are all as an unclean thing. And our iniquities like the wind have carried us away. But Lord, we thank Thee for grace that always views us in Christ and always treats us as thou wouldst treat Christ. We thank thee that he is our head and we are members of his body. Oh, Lord, in the midst of this increasing decay, decadence we see all around us, as the allurements of the world increase more and more, as Satan produces all kinds of arguments for compromise. We pray, Lord, for the grace to be steadfast and unmovable, to have true biblical convictions, that we would have a heart that's purposed not to transgress the law of our God, the one who loves us with an everlasting love. In the name of Jesus Christ, the King, we pray. Amen and amen.